This morning we are beginning a series uh, in the book of Exodus, so you can open up in your Bibles to the book of Exodus. It should be easy to find. It's the second book in the Bible. Josh and I liked a lot of the same things. Um, when it came to food, we both loved sushi. We both loved Korean food. When it came to sports, we both were avid supporters of Liverpool Football Club. When it came to um, entertainment, movie, television, music, we liked a lot of the same things. But there were some things that we didn't agree on. Um, I love Greek food. Josh never did, for whatever reason. Didn't like it. No offense to those of you that are Greek here. Um, He rooted for the Seattle Mariners. I rooted for the New York Yankees. And uh, there was one show Josh loved that I never got got into, and it's a show called Doctor Who. And in the show Doctor Who, there's a quote from one of the characters who says that in the end, we are all stories, so make it a good one. What makes a good story? What makes an epic story? What makes an unforgettable story, a a larger-than-life story? I think it's memorable characters with compelling backstories, intense drama, great conflict, unforgettable scenes, unexpected heroes, against all the odds, victory. And the book of Exodus has all of that. Exodus is an epic story. And in the original language, Exodus begins with an unexpected word. It begins with the word, and which means we're in the middle of something. We're joining something that's already begun. And the first seven verses connect us to the previous book, the book of Genesis, and they remind us how the Hebrews ended up in Egypt. In Genesis chapter 12, God chose a man named Abraham. He said, Abraham, I will be your God, and your people will be my people, and through you I will bless the whole world. Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to Israel, And Israel had 12 sons, and one of his sons, his second youngest son, was named Joseph. His 10 older brothers hated Joseph, and they sold him into slavery. And that's how Joseph ends up in Egypt. Well, the brothers end up in Egypt because there is a severe famine. And what they don't know is that in between all this time, God has elevated Joseph to be second in command in all of Egypt Joseph uses his newfound power not to punish and destroy his brothers who sold him into slavery, but to rescue them. And he invites all of them, including his father, to come to Egypt, and they are welcomed in, and they are given land. And so we know that Jacob and 70 Hebrews come to Egypt. And so we're seven verses into Exodus chapter 1, and everything seems okay. But then, verse 8, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. This is an ominous hint that things are about to go very badly. And by the end of chapter 2, we read these words in verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. How did the Israelites get into such a hopeless situation? And At this point, they've been enslaved as a people for nearly 400 years. They can't remember freedom, nor can they have a conversation with anybody who remembers freedom. What hope do they have? 
And this morning, I'm sure we're all pausing to ask ourselves, what hope do we have? In the hopeless situations that we find ourselves in at times where it seems like hope is nowhere to be found. What we're going to see in the next, ex- week, next eight weeks through Exodus is that it's a story that shows us that there's always a way out of hopelessness. <clears throat> there's always a way out of hopelessness and there is a way into hope. The word Exodus means departure or going out. In this story, we see the people of God who are departing hopelessness and they're finding hope. It all starts in the first two chapters of Exodus, and here's the two main thoughts for you this morning. The first one is this, that God's people, God's plans, and God's promises are always met with opposition. It's the bad news first. God's people, God's plans, and God's promises are always met with opposition. Pharaoh is a title, not a name. His name was not Pharaoh. There were many Pharaohs. Pharaoh was a title, much like we would call the president. And the Pharaoh looks at Israel, which started with 70, but now through God's miraculous blessing on these people, the Pharaoh says, Israel are too many and they're too mighty for us. They're growing. They're multiplying. And he has this fear that if war breaks out and enemies come to fight us, the Hebrews will rise up from within us and they will fight against us. And then here's his ultimate fear, not so much that they will fight against us, but then they will escape from our land. And so Pharaoh sets up taskmasters to afflict them with heavy burdens. And so they build cities. Two cities by name are mentioned in the text for Pharaoh and for his glory. And verse 12 says this, But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. So here's Pharaoh oppressing the people of God, but because God's blessing is on them, they're continuing to thrive and multiply even in oppression. So it gets worse. They make them work as slaves. They make their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick. And they ruthlessly make them work as slaves. In fact, in verses 13 and 14, seven times they repeat some version of the word slave. And it's a literary device which is intended to almost hit us like a whip would hit the back of a slave. Seven times, slave, slave, slave. I researched the stages of brick making, and this is what it involved. Listen to this. Hauling water, hauling clay, pouring and mixing water and clay, then mixing it with straw, kneading the mud mixture with your bare feet for four days, allowing it to rest, kneading it again, pouring the mixture into molds, cutting the bricks, putting them in the sun to dry, hauling stacks of bricks to a work site, and then laying them with mortar, all done in the oppressive climate of Egypt, and all done under the ruthless abuse of Egyptian taskmasters. In fact, there is an ancient text, not the Bible, but another ancient text that gives us a glimpse into the life of the Hebrew slaves. And it shows us this story of a pharaoh, uh, or, or sorry, a ruler of Egypt uh, walking up to a Hebrew and saying, give us grain. And the Hebrew says, there is none. We, we, we can't make any more. And this is what the um, ancient text records. Because of that, he is beaten savagely. He is bound He's thrown into a well and he's submerged head down. And then his wife is bound in his presence and his children are in fetters. This was life under the rule of Pharaoh. So Pharaoh claimed to be God. He claimed to be the incarnate son of Ra, the sun god. The sun god in the Egyptian religion was the primary deity. It was a pantheistic religion with many gods, but the sun god was the primary one. And and Pharaoh was saying, I'm the son of God. The son of God. 
He's attempting to be the Lord over the Israelites. He's trying to rule and reign over them. And in doing so, here's what he's doing. He's threatening the flourishing of God's people, the fulfillment of God's promises, and the future of God's plans. Now for us, we may feel very disconnected from this story because of history and time and culture, but Pharaoh represents the idols in our lives, false gods that want to rule over our hearts, that want to control us. And Egypt represents the bondage that we find ourselves in when we serve those gods. Verse 12 says, But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And what we see here is that despite oppression, the people, the promise, and the plan move forward. And it seems like maybe that's a good thing because they're still thriving, but actually it's a bad thing because it makes things worse. Now our series is called From Slavery to Sinai. We're going through the first 20 chapters of the book of Exodus. But in this chapter, what happens is they go from slavery to slaughter. And Pharaoh tells these Hebrew midwives, here's what I want you to do. I want you to kill every baby boy that is born. But they fear God and they don't do it. And Pharaoh gets so angry and he calls them and he says, why aren't you doing what I commanded you to do? And they come up with this kind of clever response. They say, well, the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptians. They're very vigorous. That's the word. They're very vigorous. They give birth very quickly. And so they give birth before we can get there. We can't kill the babies. God honors the midwives for fearing him more than fearing Pharaoh, and he blesses them. And the Hebrews continue to grow in numbers and in strength. You know, what's interesting is that in the first two chapters of the book of Exodus, we only learn, really only learn three names. We learn the name of Moses, and we learn the name of these two Hebrew midwives. Shiphra, which means beautiful one, and Pua, which means splendid one. I bet you didn't guess that. Uh, these are midwives. It's interesting because they're not significant in the history of Egypt from everybody else's eyes. But in God's eyes, they're significant. Enough to record their names. And you know whose name is never recorded? Pharaoh's. We don't know which Pharaoh this is. I mean, we can go through history and we can probably figure out which Pharaoh it was. But there's a theological significance in these first two chapters that God says Pharaoh is so insignificant to the history of salvation that I will not even record his name. But these two women who nobody else knew, I will record their names. The point is not to focus on the Pharaoh of the Exodus, but to focus on the God of the Exodus and his people. The king of Egypt's name has been forgotten, but not God and not his people. In verse 22, Pharaoh becomes emboldened and he steps up his effort and he commands all his people and he says this, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. It was the sons he feared because of the, he, was a fear, he was afraid of the warriors. Now, at this point, surely the people of God are done for. Pharaoh, who is viewed as a god by the Egyptians, has given a command to kill every Hebrew baby boy. Now he's emboldened enough to make it a sweeping command, not just a directive to two Hebrew midwives, but Everyone in the land knows this is what Pharaoh wants them to do. So surely, surely the people of God are done for. The promise is lost and the plan is ruined. And I'm sure the Israelites were wondering at this time, why this suffering? Why this pain? A few thoughts on why we suffer and why we go through pain. The first one is so obvious, we tend to skip right past it. But the reason why they're suffering and why there's so much pain is the Egyptians. They've made choices. They've made sinful choices. And there are sinful choices that we make and sinful choices being made around us. 
that brings suffering and pain into our lives. Suffering also prevents us from placing our hope in the wrong things. It gives us a desire for something better. Suffering can help us look to our Savior. And suffering can actually serve us. I was looking at this science website called awesci.com, and I was reading this article about biosphere number two. Let me just share this with you. Biosphere two is a miniature version of our planet owned by the University of Arizona. It was constructed by scientists to study how the planet's living systems work. But the major discovery from it was something none of the scientists expected. In Biosphere 2, they had trees growing faster than they would grow in the wild. Also, they found that these trees wouldn't completely mature. Before the tree could completely mature, it would collapse. Later, it was found that this was caused by the lack of wind in the biosphere. And it turns out wind plays a major role in a tree's life. Listen to this. This is right off the website. The presence of wind makes a tree stronger. It is thus able to mature and not fall down under its own weight. The presence of pain and suffering makes us as a people stronger so that we are able to mature and not fall down under the burden of our own weight. When you allow God to mature you in the middle of terrible times and difficult circumstances, you know what you're doing? You're making suffering your servant and not your master. It will serve you. And last thought on this is that God will always choose our destiny over our comfort. He will always choose his mission over our preferences. What if the Israelites had never been enslaved? What if Pharaoh was happy to have them and happy to let them coexist? What if there had been no opposition and no oppression? Well, a famous preacher, Charles Spurgeon, says this. He says, if that had happened, then in all probability, they would have been melted and absorbed into the Egyptian race, and they would have lost their identity as God's special people. They were content to be in Egypt, and they were willing to be Egyptianized. To a large degree, they had already begun to adopt the superstitions and idolatries and iniquities of Egypt, and these things clung to them in their after years to such a terrible extent that we can easily imagine that their hearts must have already turned aside very much toward the sins of Egypt. Yet all the while, God was resolved, he was determined to bring them out of that evil connection. They must be a separate people. They could not be Egyptians nor live permanently like Egyptians because Jehovah had chosen, chosen them for himself and he meant to make an abiding difference between Israel and Egypt. And here's what he's saying. The great crisis in the opening chapters of Exodus is not the oppression and the opposition in Egypt. The great crisis is that the people of God are at risk of losing their identity and their mission in Egypt. And in any moment of our lives, including this week, the great crisis for us is not actually what's happening around us or to us, but it's always what's happening inside of us, losing our purpose and our identity. So that's the first chapter. We get to the second chapter and we get to the second point and we start to find some good news. And here's the second point this morning. God sees what no one else can see and God saves when no one else can save. God sees what no one else can see, and God saves when no one else can save. Exodus chapter 2 begins, and we find a Levite couple, tribe of Levi, priest. They have a baby boy. Imagine in this time being a Hebrew and getting pregnant. 
and knowing the law that's gone out from Pharaoh, imagine the feelings and the emotions. This is obviously way prior to sonograms. They could not determine the gender of their baby until the moment the baby was born. And they knew 50% chance our child gets to live. 50% chance our child is thrown into the Nile River. Imagine what this was like for them. So they have this baby, and they realize he's a boy. And the mother hides him for three months, but she can't hide him forever. You know that if you have a child, a six-month-old, a nine-month-old, and you try to take him into public somewhere, you can't hide him forever. And so they made a basket, and they placed him in the Nile River, trusting God. Now, one interesting thing is that the word basket here in Exodus chapter 2 is only used one other time in all of the Old Testament, and it's used to describe the ark, the ark that Noah and his family are in. And so we have this beautiful connection here that once again, one or a few are being saved so that many can be saved. The daughter of Pharaoh finds Moses and takes pity, and he, she names him Moses. Now Moses' sister has been watching this whole thing. She's, she's watching on the riverside, and she runs up to Pharaoh's daughter, and she suggests, hey, uh, if you're going to keep that baby, do you want me to go find a Hebrew nurse to raise this child? And Pharaoh's daughter says, yes, go find a Hebrew to nurse this child. And so Moses' sister runs back to Moses' mom, and Moses' mom comes. Look at verse 9. It says, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, well, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Now what we see here is God's sovereign work of seeing and saving. He's at work in an Egyptian princess. What do you think Moses' sister was thinking when she saw the basket flow to Pharaoh's daughter? She probably thought this is the worst possible scenario. Nothing good is about to come out of this. She never would have expected it. But God was already at work in the heart of that Egyptian princess, changing her heart towards this baby. And God worked all things out for the good of this family. I mean, this mother not only got to raise her child, but she was paid to do so. And the inclusion of this Egyptian princess in this beautiful salvation story, it reminds us that God's plan was not actually just for the Hebrews, but it was for all people both then and now. In fact, in chapter 12, we'll see that when the Israelites finally leave Egypt, it's a mixed multitude that leaves. It's not just Hebrews. There's some Egyptians that leave with them also. Now, she names him Moses, and in Hebrew, the name sounds like the verb masha, which means to draw out. It's a beautiful foreshadowing that God is going to use Moses to draw out his people from Egypt. And so Moses, after he's raised for some years by his own mother, he's given to Pharaoh's daughter, and he grows up in Egypt. And as the prince of Egypt, Moses had every advantage that he needed. In fact, in Acts 7.22, when Stephen is standing before the Sanhedrin, he says that Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and his deeds. And what's amazing about God's sovereign work in saving here is that God put Moses in a position where he could see his people being oppressed, but he was not one of the people being oppressed. He was trained. He was educated. 
Maybe he thought, uh, you know, I, I can change things from the inside. Uh, maybe he thought I can have influence and I can rescue my people. Maybe he thought if I stay in the palace, uh, this is the right place for me to be. But then one day everything changes. And in verse 11, it says that one day when Moses had grown up, and this is, he's actually 40 years old here, so he's more than grown up. He's 40 years old. He went out to his people and he looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew one of his people. Now, let's stop for a second. How does Moses see himself at this point? The verse kind of gives us some clues. First off, it says that he went out. Now, that verb, went out, is the same verb that will be used later to describe going out of Egypt, the Exodus. He goes out to his people, and it's really symbolized that he is going out from everything that he's known. He's leaving his comfort as an Egyptian prince. He's going out now. And he looks, this word look means to look with emotion. This is a heart transforming experience. He didn't just see it happening, but his heart was changed when he saw their burdens. And he sees this Egyptian beating a Hebrew. By choosing to identify with the Hebrews, he went against everything he had been raised to value and belief. Because one of the primary goals of Pharaoh's educational system was to reinforce the pride of those in power. You studied your way away from manual labor and toil. You remember when when Joseph brought his whole family to Egypt, they were all herdsmen and shepherds, and they warned them. The Egyptians looked down on shepherds. They don't think very much. That's because their value system was you train yourself and you educate yourself so you don't have to do manual labor. And so uh, here's Moses moving away from everything to work. He gives up his comfort for suffering. In Hebrews, the great chapter of faith, it says that Moses, when he had grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. So here's what Moses does. He sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. It says he looked this way, he looked that way, he saw no one, he struck down and killed the Egyptian, and he hid him in the sand. It's interesting because Moses has a heart for his people, right? He wants to deliver them, but he isn't the leader they need yet. He's rash. He's violent. The way he acts is actually exactly how the Egyptians act. So although he's the leader and he's the deliverer they need, he doesn't have the heart yet to lead. And he takes matter into his own hands. The very next day, he sees two Hebrews struggling. He, Hebrews fighting each other, and he tries to break them up. He says, hey, why are you hitting each other? And one of them says, who made you a prince and judge over us? Are you going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? And so now Moses is afraid because he realizes people know what I did. And it says that when Pharaoh learned about this, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh. Now Moses is rejected on two levels here. First, he's in danger from the Egyptians. They want to kill him. But also he's rejected by the Hebrews that he came to save. And he runs off and he ends up by a well in Midian. And there's seven sisters there drawing waters for their flock. And Moses helps them do what they need to do. And they come back and, and their dad says to them, how did you, why are you done so soon? Kind of reminds me like when you send your child up to their room to clean their room and they come back down two minutes later and you're like, I know that wasn't enough time. Why are you done so soon? How are you back so soon? So the, the, the daughter's dad says, why are you done so soon? And they give him this answer in verse 19. Look at this. It says, they said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hands of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. Now leave that verse up there for a second because there's actually a really interesting foreshadowing here. They say an Egyptian delivered us out of the hands of the shepherds. But where's the story headed? When Moses goes back, it will be a shepherd 
who is delivering the people out of the hands of the Egyptians. This shows us that in this moment in Moses' life, everything's about to flip. He's seen as an Egyptian delivering people from shepherds. He's about to become a shepherd who will deliver people from the Egyptians. Moses ends up marrying one of the sisters, has children, and he spends the next 40 years of his life in the wilderness living a life of obscurity. But here's the thing. God sees him. God never lost track of Moses. And these 40 years for Moses were not wasted because in the kingdom of God, nothing is wasted. Not a single moment, not a single thing, not a single circumstance, nothing is wasted. And we see here in the living situation that he's in, that he's been put in a place to rely on God and he has to, he has to leave everything that he's relied on before. And now he's got this work situation where he's a shepherd, which is a disgraceful job to the Egyptians. And leading sheep is hard work, especially leading sheep in the wilderness. But look at how that prepares him for what he's going to do someday, where he's going to lead millions of people through a desert. God is preparing him because nothing is wasted. And this morning, God is preparing you because nothing that happens to you, nothing that's happening in you is being wasted. Meanwhile, Back in Egypt, we read these words. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, I love this, and God knew. I want to close with this thought. We have this amazing comparison in the first two chapters of Exodus between Pharaoh and Jehovah. The one who claims to be the son of God and the one who will come to be the son of God. One sees what no one else can see and one saves when no one else can save. Pharaoh can't even see what's going on right in front of him. There's these deceptive midwives. There is Moses' mom is hiding Moses from Pharaoh and his people. In fact, think about this. The future deliverer of the people is growing up in his own house. He's feeding him. He's training him. He's educating him. Pharaoh is using his resources and his finances, and he's pouring into Moses, totally unaware that Moses is the one that God will raise up to bring his people out of hopelessness and into hope. And Pharaoh can't see it because Pharaoh's not God, and he can't see all things. Pharaoh also cannot save his people from what's coming. Under great persecution, guess what happens? The Israelites, they keep growing. Pharaoh's doing everything he can, but because God gave them a mandate in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 to go and multiply and fill the earth, they continue to multiply and fill the earth. And Pharaoh can't stop Moses from escaping out of Egypt. So Pharaoh can't see, Pharaoh can't save. And then we get to the last verse of chapter 2, and it simply says this. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Four verbs we read in the verse before it. God hears, God remembers, God sees, and God knows. God hears. He's heard our cries. He hears our cries. He hears our cries today. God remembers. He remembers every promise he's made. He may keep his promises in a way we don't expect, in a way we wouldn't choose. But he's not forgotten. 
one moment in history, listen to this, at one moment in history, God's entire plan for triumphing over evil was riding down the Nile River in a little papyrus basket. Thousands of years later, God's entire plan for triumphing over evil was born in a cave outside Bethlehem and laid in a wooden manger. And 33 years later, God's entire plan for triumphing over evil outside the city of Jerusalem was walking up a hill and laid on a wooden cross because saved by Jesus' work on our behalf, not by our work on his behalf. We cannot save ourselves, but God saves when no one else saves. You are not saved by what your hands have done. You're saved by what his hand has done. Before we pray, I want to read three verses for this old hymn written in 18, 1861 by Horatio Bonner. simply called, Not What My Hands Have Done will be on the screen as I read. Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, Thy love to me, O God, not mine, O Lord, to Thee, can rid me of this dark unrest and set my spirit free. Thy grace alone, O God, to me can pardon speak. Thy power alone, O Son of God, can this sore bondage break. No other work save Thine. No other blood will do. No strength save that which is divine can bear me safe. sees what no one else can see. 